of the 20th century. He was a very gifted speaker, writer, preacher, pastor, apologist, that is to say a defender of the Christian faith. Uh, again, he was, he was one of the greats. Um, what many of you may not know, if you're familiar with Schaefer at all, uh, many who are familiar with him actually don't know this, is that back in the early 1950s, Francis Schaeffer went through an intense, deep time of a spiritual crisis in his life. Uh, it was so profound. It was so deeply troubling to him, and it lasted for months, that he found himself having to go back and back and back and back and reassessing the very fundamentals of what he believed, the very basics of what he believed, and to start over. That's how profound, that's how deep this struggle was that, that Schaefer went through. And it was, just as a side note, it was in many ways because of that time that he had such a heart and such a compassion for others in their own doubts, in their own fears, in their own struggles in the, in the years to come, in the ministry that came in, in the, the decades that followed. It's, it's worth asking what caused this crisis, right? Schaefer was very clear in what caused the crisis. It was a lack of love among Christians. It was a lack of love among his fellow believers that caused him to question and to doubt whether or not what he thought he believed was even true. Now, think of that. Th think of the significance of that. This, this is how he, he and Edith, his wife, put it uh, later. The, the great question that was pressing in upon them at the time was, how could people stand for God's holiness and purity of doctrine in the church and in one's personal life and yet not have it turn out to be harsh and ugly. The harshness and the ugliness of what they observed took place mostly in a group of individuals that at that time was referred to as the separated movement. This is a group of believers who predominantly in that time were agreed upon what they disagreed on. They were sure about what they didn't like. And so they withdrew and they separated themselves into their own movement. And predictably, tragically, inevitably, they then themselves began to be torn asunder with division. It was an awful time. It was a horrendous time. Schaefer, again, um, was thrown into, frankly, despair in his own words in this. He saw signs of it in his own heart, in his own life, and was horrified. And again, began to wonder, is any of this even real? That should point us towards recognizing the great risk that we run when we fail to love, that it could throw people around us and eventually ourselves into despair as to whether or not Christianity is even true. Do you, do you see the connection here? 
the great risk we run when we fail to love, which then takes us to the absolute necessity of hearing Jesus' words and to go back to them and back to them and back to them and never leave them, never, never leave them. So as I said earlier, we're going to be spending some time, in fact, the next three weeks, this week and the next two, in John 13, and in fact, these two verses. If you want some Scripture memory to work on, I have a suggestion (laughs) for the next three weeks, two verses. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Uh, If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn there with me now. I'm going to read it to you. You can see it there on the screen as well. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Hear now the Word of God. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, would you please put us there? In that moment, in that moment, on the night before your betrayal, amidst your disciples, would you put us there and help us to hear? In the drama of that moment, especially as we look back, like time travelers, as we would go back And we can see what's coming, and we can very easily get a sense as to the priority of these words and the burden that you have on your heart, not had, but have on your heart for what you're saying and conveying to us, would you please help us hear? We sung about your ability to move mountains. We need you to move a mountain. And we plead with you now and ask in your name. Amen. In the silver chair, one of C.S. Lewis's books within the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the great lion, calls two children, Jill and Eustace, into Narnia and gives them a task, a vital task, to find a long, long lost prince. Now, because the children, soon after their arrival, are separated, Aslan is forced then to give these necessary instructions that he has to but one of them, and that is to Jill. He gives Jill four signs, four signs by which... Uh, He will then guide them together uh, on their quest, and he has her repeat them repeatedly until she knows them perfectly. And then before he sends her out on her way, he gives her this charge. Let me read you these words from uh, uh, the silver chair. But first, this is Aslan, but first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. 
I will not often do so down in Narnia. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. That's like Aslan doing a mic drop. Nothing else matters. There's a lot of weight and a lot of freight to that, to that sentence there at the end. And the reason is because these two children, Jill and Eustace, have been sent out on a mission. The great lion has given them a task. And the success of this mission, the success of this task is, com- is conditioned on something. And it's conditioned on their following, heeding, and obeying the signs. Some of you know, if you're familiar with Lewis's writing in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that Aslan is in essence a, a metaphor, a symbol for Jesus, for Jesus, our risen King. So it shouldn't surprise us then in, in any way at all that in many respects what, a, what Aslan is conveying, what he is saying there to those children, Jesus in essence is saying, to us, or if I could put it another way, it is just as essential for us in this world to heed the signs as it is for the children to heed them in that world, or if I can put it another way. Jesus has marked out the path. Jesus has marked out the path for His disciples. We must walk in it. Jesus has marked out the path for His disciples. We must walk in it. Now, now what is the path, you, you ask? Well, it's very simple. There in verses 34 and 35. The, the path is very, very simple. And, and the points I'm going to draw from that uh, this morning one half of one verse are very simple. We have a command to love one another. Three points. We have a command to love one another. That's the path. So let's look at these in turn. First, the command. Jesus makes very clear that there, is, uh, there, there are two things that we need to recognize uh, with, with this, and the, the first is there's a newness to it. On the one hand, there's a sense in which everything He said has already been said, and He said it. But there's also a sense in which it hasn't been said. So it's sort of both at the same time. There's, there's a newness to his, his words. For starters, there's an intensity There's an intensity here with these commands that has never been uttered before. In other places, Jesus made clear that we are, in fact, to love our neighbor, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Not just that, though, but to go further and to love even our enemy, right? Jesus made that very, very clear in in His teaching. It's, It's to go further than just neighbor love. We are to love even our enemy, or you could think of it this way, we are to love not just the, the unlovely, but the unloving. We are to love not just the oppressed, but the oppressor, right? 
It has a hard edge to it, but that's what Jesus tells us when He expands the, the scope and, the, the, and deepens the intensity of this. We also see newness not just in terms of the intensity, but newness in terms of the standard. Because no longer is He just saying, you are to love just as you would like to be loved, but you are to love just as I have loved you. And that's really raising the bar. So you, you, you see that the, there's a newness in terms of the intensity. There's a newness in terms of, of the standard here. There's also a boldness to it when you consider the moment. And, and, and when you think about what he's just said. So uh, there, there's, a, there's a seriousness to the hour. Now, scholars and New Testament commentators for, for centuries have referred to what begins here with this section as Jesus' farewell discourse. Now, His disciples don't know that. They don't know that they should call this the farewell discourse because they're hearing it for the first time, and they don't really get that He's actually saying farewell, right? But there is nonetheless a sense in which a gravitas to the moment that even they at that moment can grasp. Something significant is happening here. He's arresting their attention, grabbing them by the, 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 the hem of their garments, so to speak. But it's not just it's that. There's a sense in which you can, there's a, not just a seriousness of the hour, but a, a, a supremacy of His words that, that seems to ramp everything up here in the boldness of what He says. Again, verse 34, again, just as he begins, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. This is not just a new piece of advice. It's not just a, hey, you know, you, you might want to try this. This is a new commandment, something on the order of when the very finger of God etched into stone tablets and then gave those tablets to Moses. That's the weightiness of what Jesus is saying here. A commandment I give to you. And these Jewish men, he has them. He has them at this moment. He's giving us a new commandment. Are we prepared to hear it? Are we willing to hear it? What is our posture as we're listening to Jesus speaking right now? Not me, Him. As we're listening to Jesus speak right now, what is our posture at this moment? Is it as the creature before its creator? Is it as the child before his parent? Is it as the subject before her king? Are we coming to him? Are we, is our posture before him right at this existential moment an honest readiness to receive whatever he says? and then to run with it. It needs to be considering who's speaking. Considering who's speaking. Jesus has marked out this path, path a path for His disciples 
We need to walk in it. Well, then that takes us to the second point because what is then the command? Okay, he is, there is a command. What is the command? The command is to love. Now, in particular, as we look at John's gospel, this is really helpful to, to kind of delve into that and really grapple with something of what, when John uses that terminology, what does, typically speaking, what does he I mean? There's, there's a survey worth doing here of, of John's writings on this, and in particular, John's gospel. Statistically speaking, this may interest you, John uses words pertaining to love more than the other three gospel writers combined. In the New Testament, as you do a survey of the agape, that's the type of love that John is speaking of here, as you do a survey of the agape word groups, nouns and verbs and adjectives and all such, in John's writing, he takes up nearly one-third of the usages of the agape word group. That's a pretty high concentration of agape. John's really pressing into this and really wants his readers to be awakened to, to, to something here. Okay, moving from statistics to just, let's do some samplings. Like, where do you see this? What do you see when you see this? Well, you see the Father loving the Son, time and again, references along those lines. You see the Son's love for the Father, time and again you see references along those lines. You also see, highly significantly, God's love for the world. John 3.16, you may have heard this, the word is agape, for God so loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have an everlasting life. In all of this, what we're, we're seeing here is as, as we do this survey, we can kind of come to a point of a summary. What is this love about? What does it mean? Well, for starters, it stands out. There are a lot of other ways of understanding what love is. A lot, of way, a lot of other words that are used for it, even in the Greek. This love, agape love, is not driven by self-interest or self-gratification or self-protection. It is not born of attraction, nor is it driven by a desire to get its own way. That's not what agape love is. Agape love is a sacrificial love. That's just rock bottom. It's a sacrificial love that gives itself for the sake of the highest, deepest good of another person. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. That's the kind of love that we're speaking of here. It never, I've just stated it positively, let me come back to it, coming at it from the other side. Negatively, it never sees another person as a means towards an end, but sees that person as the end itself. 
That's the, the, the weightiness. That's the, the essence of agape love. And this is the kind of love that Jesus is commanding us to walk in with one another. We'll get into that in just a minute. So agape. Agape is how we are called to love God. Agape is how we are called to love one another. And we're going to get into who is the object, humanly speaking, who is the object of such love. Before we get into that, I just want to ask this question, though. What would it mean for us to love in this way? In a sacrificial giving of oneself for the sake of the fulfilling the, fru- the, the, the fruit fruition of life in another person. What would it mean in terms of how we use our time? How we spend our money? What would it mean in terms of our willingness to sacrifice of ourselves, to lay down to give up, to forfeit something for the sake of another person. It could be a desire. It could be an aspiration. It could be a goal. It could be a plan. It could be a thing. I don't know. It, it's, it's, there's a lot of possibilities out there. But what would it mean to be willing to forfeit that, to lay it down for the sake of another person? We have to ask ourselves these questions given given what Jesus is commanding us to do. He's marked out this path that His disciples are meant to walk on. We have to then walk on it. That takes us to the third point. He's given us a command, a command to love, a command to love one another. Now, I need to back up here just, just to qualify this just for a moment because the Bible is rather expansive when it speaks on this matter of loving other persons. We have to say that certainly the Scriptures, and Jesus elsewhere speaks of this and, and models it fantastically for us, that we are called to love every person. Every person. Just think in terms of the second greatest commandment, Right? There's no, there are no qualifiers there in terms of who are to be the recipients of this love. Christians are called, commanded, in fact, to love everyone. Why? Because everyone is made in the image of God, made according to His likeness. And therein, with inestimable dignity and value, worth that is beyond our fathoming, So therein we are commanded to love every person. Neighbor love is another way of putting this. Some of you may be familiar with the story that Jesus tells. We oftentimes refer to it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus makes it very clear in in that parable. The the, the object lesson is that who is my neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor. And, And most especially the person in need is your neighbor. You may know something of the context of how that story comes to be told. A man comes to Jesus, questioning Jesus, trying in essence to hem in to restrict the boundaries of love, and Jesus will have nothing of it. And says, no, 
Love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? The, everyone around you, especially the person in need. So we are commanded to love everyone, every person. Okay, but what does Jesus say in this passage, in this text? Here in John 13, what is he really driving at? Here's what he's driving at. We are to love every person, but most especially every Christian. That's what he's saying. When you, when you wed together the, the, the teachings here. We are commanded to love every person, but most especially every Christian. Paul echoes this, for instance, in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul says, So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Very clear. Very, very clear that we are to love everyone, but most especially every Christian, no matter who they are. No matter who they are. It doesn't matter what party they're a part of. It doesn't matter what group they're a part of. It doesn't matter what their race or culture or age or gender or occupation or schooling may be. We are to love every Christian no matter who they are and, pushing it further, no matter what they've done. Now, I say that, and I know some of you are going to immediately go to extreme cases. Yeah, but what about this? What about that? Okay, right. There are extreme cases that are worth discussing when I say no matter what they've done, but even that is governed by this law, this command to love. It just needs to be applied in the appropriate way. So let's not go and get ourselves distracted with the extreme cases. Let's just deal with the ordinary stuff that take up 99.95 of the cases. Our interpersonal conflicts, the cases in which the calling incumbent upon us is to confess our sin one to another and to forgive. Just the ordinary stuff, <laughs> okay? That's hard as nails. We don't need to go talking about the extremes to deal with difficulties. We have to go hard enough stuff just in the 24-7 in the calling to confess and to forgive. That's hard enough. We're commanded to love one another. I mentioned Francis Schaeffer a minute ago. A little book that I would encourage you. If I had the money, I'd do this right now. I really would. I'd get on it. I'd pull my phone out and do the Amazon order right this minute. But I can't do that. I would urge you to buy and read, don't just buy, and read a little gem of a book by Francis Schaeffer called The Mark of the Christian. In that book, it may be one of his most, of all the books that he wrote, maybe one of his most important. In that little book, towards the end, Schaeffer tells this story, and I'm going to read it to you. He's speaking of some examples, and so when you know, it says one, one happened among, he's referring to examples, one, among, one happened among the brethren groups in Germany immediately after World War II. In order to control the church, Hitler commanded the union of all religious groups in Germany, drawing them together by law. 
the brethren divided over this issue. Half accepted Hitler's dictum and half refused. The ones who submitted, of course, had a much easier time, but gradually in this organizational oneness with the liberal groups, their own doctrinal sharpness and spiritual life suffered. On the other hand, the group that stayed out remained spiritually virile, but there was hardly a family in which someone did not die in a German concentration camp. Now, can you imagine the emotional tension? The war is over, and these Christians brothers face each other again. They had the same doctrine, and they had previously worked together for more than a generation. Now, what is going to happen? One man remembers that his father died in a concentration camp and knows that these people in the other group remain safe. But those on the other side have deep personal feelings as well. And gradually these brothers came to know that this situation just would not do. A time was appointed when the elders of the two groups could meet together in a certain quiet place. I asked the man who told me this, what did you do? He said, well, I'll tell you what we did. We came together. And we set aside several days in which each man would search his own heart. Here was a real difference. The emotions were deeply, deeply involved. My father has gone to the concentration camp. My mother was dragged away. These things are not just little pebbles on the beach. They reach into the deep wellsprings of human emotions. But these people understood the command of Christ about this, and for several days every man did nothing except search his own heart concerning his own failures and the commands of Christ. Then they met together. I asked the man, what happened then? And he said, we were just one. Now, you may be wondering at this point, where are you going with this? The angst of 2020 is nothing compared to the terror of Nazi Germany. But still, something needs to be said. I don't intend to draw a comparison, much more of a contrast, or more clearly yet an if-then statement. If those brothers and sisters, at the end of World War II, in Germany could pursue and experience relational reconciliation and restoration, how can we say in 2021 it can't happen? Given the vast differences of experiences, how can we possibly say that it can't happen? It needs to happen. It needs to happen. Do an inventory. Look around you. Search your heart. Bruised relationships. I'm talking about within the family of God, among brothers and sisters in Christ. Bruised relationships is 2021 in the wake of 2020. Now, what will we do? What has Jesus said? What has He said? 
many of us have strong opinions and have taken strong stances on COVID-19, on racial reconciliation, and on politics. That's fine. But we need every one of us to ask this question. Have I taken those opinions and those stances and run roughshod over other people with them? We need to ask that question. Think of it this way. Do this thought experiment, a relational inventory. Think back over your friendships, your family relationships, 2019, where were they with certain individuals? Ask yourself where you are now, and then ask yourself, is that okay? Is that how it should be? People have been hurt. Blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ have been hurt. And it didn't just happen. It's not like a meteor dropped down from the sky and people got hurt. The injuries came from the relationships within the relationships themselves. What is incumbent upon us as followers of Jesus in 2021? Facing John 13. Psalm 139 may be instructive at this point. Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. An earnest prayer that we would take to the Lord with a broken spirit. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Going before the Lord and mourning. Mourning where the bruising has taken place and where in any way we have contributed to it. Mourning and then seeking and going. Mourning seeking and going with utter humility, asking open-ended questions with a willingness to hear whatever is said with no defensiveness. That's the only way forward. That's the only way forward. Jesus has marked out a path for us, a path of love, loving one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Those are His words. They're sobering. They're striking. He's speaking, to them, speaking those words to us now. Anyone in this room who's honest 
would have to acknowledge we fall far short of them, every one of us, every one of us. There is yet encouragement to be found. Even in the command that he's speaking, think with me, stay with me, there's encouragement to be found in the command that he is giving. Think of the implication that Jesus is... Put the, can we put those words back up on the screen? Think of the, the implication of these words. C- consider the, the governing assumption that Jesus would command us to do this thing. Let me paint a picture for you. Imagine a, a, a teenage driver with a freshly minted license, okay? And their, one, their parent says to them, I need you to go to the store. All right, that's the imperative, right? That's the command. Thou shalt go to the store. What's the implication there? The parent thinks the child can do it. The parent is giving the child, if you will, the freedom to do it. To, to, there's, there's a possibility here. There's a, a potentiality here. That parent's not sending that child out to a fiery death. There's an assumption that it can happen. And the child, of course, receives that command. Most, most do with utmost glee. What if we heard Jesus' command to us here in, with that spirit? A new command I give to you that you love one another, recognizing that it's possible that we could do this, that there's a potentiality there, that he's not setting us up to fail. I mean, we, we know, we know that he never commands us to do anything that he does not also yet give us the grace to do. On the eve of his appearing, what does the angel say to Mary? I tell you, nothing is impossible with God. That's how Jesus comes into the world. Paul, writing to his readers in Philippi, says, I can do everything through him who strengthens me. And just as an aside, that's not a blank check. That's not a promise with no context and no content that we just fill in like an empty bucket. In the context of what Paul is saying there, there in Philippians 4, he is referring to love and obedience to Jesus and faithfulness and service to those around us. So you connect all these things. Now back to the command in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And if we'll let it, it, we just might be able to hear it in this, in this sense. Jesus, I, I, you, you really do mean this. And such is your determination to change me. to work agape into and through me, that you would speak these words to me. Oh, would you give me ears to hear? 
This is possible. As we lean into him, as we rely upon him, as we trust in him, this is possible. He's given us this path on which to walk. May we walk on it. Let's pray together. Lord, nothing has changed. Your authority is the same. Our place before you is the same. Your command still holds our struggle, goes on. Nothing has changed. But on the other hand, everything has changed. You've sent your spirit. We are temples of the spirit of the risen Jesus. The fulfillment of the Emmanuel promise is real. You are with us. So we ask that you would embolden and humble us, encourage and cause us to mourn, make us people marked by love for one another. Make us what we are. Make us what we are. We pray in your name. Amen. We're continuing in this service of worship in the giving of our tithes and offerings. And this is a response. This is nothing more or less than a response to the Lord's grace to us. And Paul is writing of this very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. He is speaking of an inexpressible gift that we could give back. Let me read these words. The point of